morning, church. The scripture passage today will be in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32 and going to verse 49. Um, If you would like to follow along, um, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1608. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood, watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Becca. Well, happy, happy Resurrection Sunday. I, um, this is the most important day in the Christian calendar. It is also the day most likely for you to have been dragged to church unwillingly. And so I'm going to try to preach about half as long as I normally do, um, which is probably still longer than some of you would like. And, but what it also means is I'm going to be a little more intense. I'm going to go, like, right for your teeth with the first punch, okay? So, like, you're going to have to, like, get into it right away. Okay, so the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of everything in the Christian faith. Everything rests upon it. The fact that Christ died for our sins and God the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf so that we could be forgiven is demonstrated in that he raised his son from the dead. That Jesus is a right and truthful leader whose word we can believe in and follow is demonstrated by God raising him from the dead. That we will be raised from the dead. That Christ is the firstborn from among the dead, to quote the Bible, because we will be the secondborn. That we can believe in a resurrection It's not because someone somewhere in the mystical ends of history invented a mythology about resurrection, but because the man Jesus Christ in time-space history on the basis of reasonable witnesses publicly actually rose from the dead and was seen by many people. Right? 
And that is supposed to have a profound and powerful emotional payoff for us every day. It is supposed to root us in hope and in joy and in peace and in confidence and in the courage necessary to live well and beautifully and happily, right? And yet, and when you look at the evidence for believing in the resurrection, it's, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. There is a lot of good evidence. There are numerous eyewitnesses who went on to be martyred for being eyewitnesses. Not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also Peter and Paul separately in their writings specifically testified to be eyewitnesses. And then the gospel writers like Luke curates all these other people's eyewitness accounts in a particular document for us so that we can know that there were not just a few, but there were dozens. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, more than 500 at one time that saw Jesus risen from the dead. And all this can come to us in direct accounts, right? From people who were martyred and whose preaching thousands and thousands and thousands of people found believable. And preaching that somebody rose from the dead, that's not easy to find believable. Remember, when Paul mentions it in Acts 17 in the Areopagus, people laugh at him, but some believe, right? Yet, in my experience, what I found is that people still really struggle with believing in the resurrection. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it, on two counts, it's something that's very difficult to believe, right? Like, if I told you you could go into, like, Chick-fil-A and say a word and get a free sandwich, like, you wouldn't—it would, it wouldn't take much for me to persuade you because who cares? Like, it's a sandwich, but the, the, the resurrection has two difficult things. One is, it claims that somebody was dead, became irrevocably alive again, which is kind of hard empirically to believe for a lot of people. And then secondly, it's not just that. If he rose from the dead, he's king and God, and you owe him, you owe him everything, which is emotionally terrifying. To lose your autonomy, your absolute right to govern your own life, is really terrifying. Now, once you get on the other side of faith, you realize that when God is involved in something, raising somebody from the dead is no big deal. And secondly, the only thing that you really leave behind is your autonomy to sin and be evil. Which, why shouldn't we be willing to let go of that? But sometimes you don't realize that from the front side or when you're in doubt or when you're f feeling cynical, right? And what I, I realized over time is, is that a big part of the issue of believing in the resurrection isn't just the fact that a number of people as eyewitnesses said that it happened, but our belief in the character of those people. There are a number of things in the world that I wouldn't believe if a hundred people that I didn't know told me it happened. And yet, almost anything that can be physically observed, if my wife told me that she saw it happen, I would believe her. I've known her for 23 years, and the, the woman just doesn't lie, I think. <laughs> and so, one of the reasons why that's important is because over time, for 2,000 years, but really in earnest in the last 350 years, under the pretense of science, people have been criticizing and attacking and besmirching the character of the witnesses themselves. Because it doesn't just come down to the fact that people witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. The character of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and Paul and the people whose testimonies Mark and Luke record, the character of those people is what matters. If you don't believe in the character of those people, what does it matter if there's seven of them? It doesn't matter if there's three or three hundred of them. 
Right? And so what often happens is their character gets attacked. And one of the ways it often happens is when the testimonies that are given are compared with one another, and there's any inconsistencies in them, and those are seen as character-destroying contradictions. Now, for anybody who deals with testimonies, like police or people who read ancient documents, of course, we all know that anytime you get more than a couple testimonies about something, they're going to sound different, and there's going to be inconsistencies. Otherwise, there was collusion. Right? Not to quote a recent word, right? So if you have multiple testimonies, there have to be inconsistencies. Otherwise, people are cheating. And then what do you do with those inconsistencies, right? And you've got a couple of options. One is you can say, oh, there's inconsistency. There's nothing to this. You just blow it off. You don't believe anybody, right? That's kind of cynical because testimonies are bound to have inconsistencies. Or it can make you afraid. You can be like, well, I want to believe in the resurrection so that I can feel like after I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But I certainly don't want to know any more. Because my fear is that if I know more— I'll know more about how I'm supposed to live, or I'll know more about God's demands on me, and I don't really want to know those things. I really just want to know that I'm going to die, and then I'm going to go, we raise from the dead, and I'm going to heaven. That's what I want to know. And so when you come across these sorts of things, you don't really want to press in further. You don't really want to know more. You just don't want people screwing around with the thing that brings you comfort. That's not really faith, guys. It's not really faith. It's just gullibility. And there's a reason why people who are skeptical look at Christians like that, and then they don't want to be Christians because they think we're all dumb. Well, we're really not dumb. We're just wicked, you know? And then the third possible thing is if you believe that there can be an answer to these things, and you want to know the truth, and you're interested in what really happened, and you think God might have something to teach you, it'll lead you to be curious. You'll press on the inconsistency and say, what's here? Is there something here worth finding, right? And so last week I did an example of an inconsistency between colors of robes or whatever. You go back last week if you want to see that. And this one, I just want to give an example. And this is just an example of what ought to happen. Because here's what's really important for you to understand. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostles, Peter, Paul. They were incomparable heroes. And it's very easy after 300 years— of alleged scientific criticism of the text of the Bible. For us to feel like the besmirching of their characters has to be at least partly true, and maybe they weren't great, or maybe it was some later author who wrote this stuff, and who really knows? And as you lose your faith in the character of the person who gives the testimony, you don't even realize it, but you lose your faith in the testimony itself. When in fact— the biblical authors were not spectacled, bow-tie-wearing, air-conditioned professors writing in offices and going to the stacks and reading books when they felt like it and putting together stuff thousands of years later that they were absolutely sure meant exactly what they said it was. No, these were men who gave the last drop of their living blood in torture, confessing their faith in the sight of the risen Jesus so that you could be sure that Jesus rose from the dead. These aren't just names on books. These are people of quality that you have never experienced. Handpicked by the Christ himself to faithfully carry a testimony that could bear the weight of history forever if necessary. Your faith in the character of the witnesses matters. 
And if you don't defend it in your hearts, it will be eroded and corroded until you can't believe, and you, not, and you will lose your trust, and you will lose all the payoffs of that trust that you're meant to feel and that are meant to strengthen you every day. So let me give you one example. In Mark and Matthew, it says that Jesus was crucified between two thieves and that they hurled insults upon Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it says that he was crucified between two criminals— one of them abused him and said a certain thing. And then another one rebuked the other guy and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so people often attack this in two ways. They'll say, one, the Romans didn't crucify thieves. That's just historically inaccurate. I don't know what, like, these guys are smoking, but like, stealing a loaf of bread in the marketplace doesn't get you nailed to a cross. It's like, no, not even the brutality of the Romans went that far, Right? And so this is just a historical inaccuracy that's just obvious in the Gospels. It's completely wrong. Secondly, which is it? Did the thieves hurl insights to Jesus? Or did one of them and not the other? Make up your mind. And then the argument then is, if they can't even get crucifixion right, they probably weren't there. They weren't even close enough to the situation to know what really happened. They're contradictory accounts, and they don't even understand the basic legal practices of a society. Right? Okay, now— one of the reasons why this tells us something about ourselves is because seeing through this takes so little work <laughs> of digging curiously that if anybody this lands on isn't interested in finding the truth. And I, I say that—I I mean, I say that guardedly because I know there's some people who are like, no, this is very scholarly. But it isn't. Like, for example— there are plenty of documents that demonstrate conclusively that the Romans did crucify thieves. First of all, it, it, it says in one Roman document that a master, as long as they're willing to pay the cost of the execution, can have any of their slaves crucified for any reason they, they deem worthy. And what's the most common crime that slaves commit against their masters? Stealing crap and running away. In another one, uh, Servius Alexander um, is running a court case about a public Roman official who had stolen in his official office, and he tries the person in the uh, proximity of a number of the local kings in that area. And when he's found guilty, Severus turns to the kings and says, what is the penalty for common thievery in your lands? And they say, the cross. And so he turns to this Roman citizen, probably, but definitely a freeman in a public position, he says, and that will be your fate, and they take him off and crucify him. Which means the kings and the Roman governor of the area was willing to crucify for thieving a Roman official because that was the normal practice of those kings in that region. And that is a Roman document. In the play Bacchides, there is a character who is a slave who steals gold from his master, and he imagines himself in the future in the play carrying not the gold but the cross. And remember, that's not an account. That is a literary example, meaning that audiences in the Roman Empire would see that character and the penalty he assumed he was going to receive as credible. Yes, they did crucify thieves, and it's not that hard to find out. Secondly, If you know the requisite language and you do the lexography, it's not difficult to realize what's going on here, right? Like I read one guy, and he's like, you know, in John's gospel, he calls Barabbas a thief or a robber, and then another place they call him an insurrectionist and a murderer. Like, 
Which is it? Matthew, of course, wants him to be a murderer so he can make the whole thing sound big, but he's probably just a robber. Otherwise, Pilate would have never let him go. Whatever. One of the things you need to realize about the human mind, and you need to realize this like when you get in an argument with your spouse or your kids, or you're angry about something at work or anything, the minute the human mind gets critical, it loses its creativity. Your, your imagination turns off, and your petty reasons why I'm right reason side turns off. And so you can't—that's so, so that, one of the reasons why you don't feel particularly empathetic when you're yelling at somebody. Because it takes imagination with empathy to realize how they're feeling and why they're talking to you like this so that you can respond to them on the basis of how they're feeling. That shut off when you turn on your, like, petty reasons why I must be right part of your mind. Right? But yet to understand what's happening here, narrowing down your, your mind to, like, petty reasonability doesn't allow you to imagine what's actually happening in any of these contexts. And so your mind isn't open to finding answers. It narrows itself down to criticize. And once you start criticizing, you always decide negatively. That's why I hear people all the time being like, well, I like to read the Bible critically. I'm like, well, then you'll always not believe it. You're not being smart. You're just being negative. Until you learn to read with creativity and interest. You can't open up your imagination enough to consider the possibilities such that you can see things working together. You'll only see what you think is wrong with something, right? So, for example, in the New Testament, there's three different words for thief. There's the word that we have in English, kleptos, where we get kleptomaniac, kleptocrat, kleptocracy, all that kind of stuff. It's the, it's the generic word for stealing. The second word is arpage, which is basically people who basically steal, but they do it like through the government or through their job or something. And so the Pharisees twice in the Gospels are called arpages, right? They use their role as Pharisees to plunder widows and orphans, right? The third one is lestes, which is essentially um, a noun made from the verb for piracy or plunder. So like what pirates do. That is, that it's, it's not just being a thief. It's not like stealing an orange. It is profound thuggery. It is the use of violence and intimidation and hatred and murder to take whatever you want from whoever you want from whatever reason that occurs to you. So for example, the story of the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets attacked and beaten within an inch of his life and everything stolen from him and he's left there to die. Lestes. You want to take a wild guess what word the New Testament authors use in relationship to the people who were crucified by Jesus? Lestes. John doesn't call Barabbas a robber, like, like, a, like a petty thief. He calls him a lestes, a brigand, a highwayman, a thug. That's what he calls him, right? Now you might say, okay, Nick, you're being a little slippery here because the real contradiction in the text of the Bible itself is that two thieves hurl insults on Jesus, and, one, and the other one only one does, and the other one doesn't. I mean, you got to deal with that inconsistency. Yes, I do. Very good. Okay. So first, we have to pay attention to the tech, what the text says about time. So the, in the ancient world, the day was a 12-hour day, not an 8-hour day, and it functioned in quarters. So there was first hour, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, twelfth hour. Okay? So the third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour is noon. Okay? Both Mark and Luke lay out this process of crucifixion, crucifixion of the robbers, people attacking Jesus, and so on. And then in Luke's gospel, at the end of that section, he has the two robbers interacting, right? And then it says, and then it was the ninth hour, or the, or the sixth hour. Now what that means is, is that Mark and Luke both place both of their accounts of these two robbers 
within a bracketed time scale that's between three and five hours, depending on how you count. Because when they say the third hour, it means about the third hour. Luke literally says about the sixth hour. So it's, if it's dead on, it's three hours. If it's not dead on, it could be as much as five hours, okay? So let's just assume it's three, because it's the most narrow way to look at it. Think for a second about then, if that's the time period, think a little bit about human inconsistency, right? Think about this. Do you remember how you felt the last time you were crucified for more than three hours? Like kind of what went through your mind and how you felt as time went on? Do you remember that? Right? I mean, that's part of the issue. To understand what happens here, you need to actually like think through what's happening. Right? I mean, in order to know that this is like a big, terrible contradiction, like you've got to believe that you really know the effect of torture on a thug who you don't know over the course of three hours who's forced to watch Jesus die too. Are you sure you know that? I mean, open up, instead of just your critical faculties of criticizing, open up your imagination a little bit, okay? You're in prison. Okay, imagine you're the the guy who turns around. Okay, just— You're in prison. You're not going to die today. It's, it's the biggest Jewish holiday. Nobody gets crucified on Passover, right? And then this Jesus guy falls afoul of these guys, and they want to get him crucified fast. The whole thing goes down in a couple hours, and before you know it, Pilate's like, well, we're going to crucify this guy. Let's do all the guys that we have, like, in the cells right now. And so you get hauled out to get crucified on a day you would have never gotten touched. You get hauled down, and then they crucify you next to this guy. Now, if you're, if you're a thug, if that's who you are, if that's your life— what is your emotional response to getting nailed to a cross, right? It's not, it's not like abjection. It's not surrender. It's rage. Like you're, like you're fighting, you're enraged, you want to kill someone, and you can't really, it doesn't do you much good to spit, spit on the Roman guards that are like nailing you to the cross because they got a knife that they could just stick in you for fun. The guy who's the most easy object of your rage is the guy that's getting you crucified today to begin with, and that's the Jesus guy. And so it's not weird that that moment of crucifixion, when they're getting nailed to the cross, and the crosses are going up, and there's all these people here watching and yelling and screaming, and they're all hurling insults at Jesus, that you just join in. Why wouldn't you? I mean, you can't even think straight. You're so full of pain and rage, right? But it's Jewish Christmas, right? Like, This is the day where they're going to have the biggest celebration of their year. They're going to start out one of the most important week-long holidays that they have. They're not going to stick around. They've got to go slaughter a lamb. They've got to cook it. They've got to have their Passover celebration. And so people are going to start clearing out pretty quick. That's why they get them crucified so early. And so people start going to their homes. They They start leaving. And you start getting tired after a while. Like, If you've never experienced pain so intense that you can't think, then you should be careful about thinking you know what would happen in a situation like this to you in your mind. There's a lot of people here who have had that kind of pain that is so intense, that's so exhausting, that you like, you you can't even make your mind think a straight thought, right? And that anger, that absolute hardness, that like anger at the world and nobody can touch me and I'll never show you any softness. Like, it starts to break just out of sheer agony and exhaustion. And then you begin to realize you're going to die. Like, nobody's going to save you. Right? And one of the things about dying slowly 
is you get to think about it for a little bit. Right? And like, don't kid yourself that there's only one kind of thug. Right? There's not one kind of thug. There's some people who convince themselves that they love the life, and that's what they're made for, and everybody has it coming, and they deserve whatever I do to them. And then there's other guys who like, their big brother got involved in it, and the the Roman soldiers maybe burn their house down. They hate those bastards and like, but they think that they're a good person. And then they get involved with this kind of gang that's roving around because they promise they're going to stick it to the Romans. and We're going to steal some tax money. And before you know it, you're like in a raid. And like, you, you never thought, you never thought about what it would be like to kill somebody. And then you find yourself over a soldier stabbing him to death as he gurgles in his blood his wife's name out. as like the last thing that he does. And you realize that you've like, you've, killed this man at your hands, and you were following that other guy, and you thought it would be different. You thought it would feel good to fight the Romans. Like, you don't know what this guy thinks. None of us do. Nobody knows how he feels, what happened, why he got into this life, who he was following, who he was passive about, what happened. But he had blood on his hands when he got caught. Maybe he was following this other guy who's on the cross, who's like maybe a harder egg than him. We don't know. But what we we do know— according to Luke, is that at a certain point, he's had enough. Sometimes we don't give this guy enough credit for what he realizes in the midst of his agony. Like, for most of us with that kind of pain, we wouldn't have thought one coherent thought. This guy puts together that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to come into his kingdom, and two— He's not going to save himself off of the cross. That ain't bad, man. That ain't bad. You see, the other guy, after three hours, he's been saying all kinds of terrible things to Jesus, but at this point, he realizes he's going to die too. And he has the same choice everybody has. In the contradiction, what are you going to pick? You see, because here's the thing. It's not the Bible that's contradictory. It's you. We are contradictions. In every place I've studied the Bible where there seemed to be a contradiction, and I pressed in, not only did I find it wasn't a contradiction, I found out the reason it was inconsistent is because I have two sides, and God had to speak to both of them. He had to speak to my hypocrisy and my inconsistency and my contradiction. And so his words sounded contradictory if I was going to be pedantic towards him and blame him. You see, at the end of the day, you have to choose yourself or God. you got a choice. And you see, even at the end, this other guy— He wants Jesus to choose him while he chooses himself. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you save yourself and us. Like, what kind of, what kind of delusion? Like, if Jesus is going to save himself, he's not going to save you too? What do you think? Because you don't like the Romans and Jesus doesn't like the Romans? Like, he's going to, like, join your band? Like, what do you think is happening? He's not going to save you and himself, right? And meanwhile, the other guy realizes, no, no, no. Jesus, this guy who I'm— nailed to look at. He doesn't deserve this. He could save himself. He could choose himself. And he's not going to. And so I have a choice. I can choose myself like this guy over here. Or I can choose him. I can choose him. And that means I can't choose myself. It means I have to be wrong. And so you get to this point right before the sixth hour, right before the darkness falls. This guy's not done yelling at Jesus. It's been a while. He's sick of hanging on this cross. He realizes he's going to die. He turns to Jesus. He says, listen, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself and us? And this guy, the guy's had enough. He's had enough. 
And he goes, don't you fear God? Think about what we did. We deserve this. We're not freedom fighters. We're murderers. And he doesn't deserve this. And then he says, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus is like, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And Luke says, and then the sixth hour starts. Right, you see, you see, if we have a little imagination, not even that much, a little imagination, we lay out the time scale, we walk ourselves through it, it makes sense. The difference is, is that you've got to trust Matthew and Mark to tell you what they're trying to tell you, and Luke to tell you what he's trying to tell you. Matthew and Mark are telling you, we are all shouters. The whole lot of us. We're all abusers. We're all shouters. We're all self-righteous. We're all self-interested. We'll all pile on Jesus. Jesus stood alone. Everyone spoke against him, and he stood alone to save all of those who hated him. And that's true. And that is a right and faithful use of the narrative. And Luke adds more information, and he wants to show us that it is okay for all of our inconsistencies, there is only, there is one inconsistency that can save us. The inconsistency of repentance. It's the only good inconsistency <laughs> to say, I was this and I thought I was right and I thought I was doing it all right. Turns out I was wrong. Turns out I can't choose myself. It turns out I need to turn around. It turns out Jesus was right. It turns out I need to fear God and realize I have whatever I've got coming to me and my only chance is to ask this guy for help. And Jesus' answer will always be yes. Right? So three really quick ways to end, and I've already said I'm just going to review them. The first is, do not let people's attempt to erode or corrode your ability to trust the eyewitnesses to give you the certainty that Jesus the Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. You were told this by hero martyrs. Do not let people steal that from you. What God has provided. Secondly, whenever you think the Bible is contradictory, you just be really careful. Because it's more likely that if you press in with curiosity, you're going to find out it's not a real contradiction. And the reason it seems inconsistent is because it's speaking to two sides of your inconsistency. That is, it's love. And it's clarity. You think about that. What we think are inconsistencies— are some of the most clarifying places of the Bible. If we are brave enough, and we're willing to work hard enough, and we're willing to, with curiosity, to really look at what's there. And then last, the reason why the resurrection is so important, and why you need to believe these things, and you need to experience that certainty, is not just because you are physically going to die. And all of us hope to rise to a better life. And that is a fundamental and central promise. But it's not just that. Every time you tell the flesh no, every time you tell your selfishness and your self-centeredness and your ego that wants to just do the easiest thing that you want to do right now that might hurt other people, anytime you want to disobey God and just do what you want, what the Bible calls sin, you always want that. And if you don't choose it, you choose what's good and right for the right reason, it always feels like a death. You only live once. You got to do what will make you happy. No, you don't. And you mustn't, actually. You must seek to do what's right and through virtue to find happiness as a follower of Christ being made in his image and walking in his resurrection life. What do you think Jesus meant in Luke 9.23 when he said, 
If you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross every day and follow me. You have to be crucified every day. What do you think he meant? He meant you're going to do something every day that's going to feel like a death if you're really his follower. Every day. You're going to turn away from something you want to do in your worst self, and you're going to burn it to ashes, and you're going to die to the happiness you think it could get you, and you're going to do what's right instead. And you're going to believe that when you go in that direction, you see why it's good and beautiful. It will produce a new kind of happiness in you that you can't see yet. Don't you see? That is a death and a resurrection. You have to die to what you want and be raised to a strange new life to find the happiness God puts in front of you every day. Friends, you're not going to die once. Oh no. Oh no, no. You're going to die if you follow Jesus. You're going to die thousands of times. You could argue that the entire Christian life— I mean, Martin Luther said, all of Christianity is repentance and faith. You could say the exact same thing this way. All of Christian faith is death and resurrection. Dying and being raised. Every day. Every minute. And it takes courage. And you have to believe that when you take up that cross and you follow him, you are following the one who every time he dies, he rises. And that's what we're celebrating with these baptisms we're about to do. Right? Like, who is the second thief? Dude, just turn to Alex's testimony. He literally laid out exactly what happened. I thought I was right. I did stupid things. I thought I knew better than everybody else. And then my life kind of fell apart. And then I was like, wait. Maybe I'm wrong. There it is. Third hour paragraph. Sixth hour paragraph. Right? That thief's, that brigand, that thug's story has to become ours. Daily. Let's pray. Father, please help us as people believe in the resurrection fully to embrace the inheritance of receiving the testimonies of eyewitness martyr heroes, and to not allow people who seek to destroy our confidence to do so. Help us to see that it's not the Scriptures that's contradictory. The Scriptures are speaking to us contradictory and inconsistent people, and that those inconsistencies get at things in us that we have to see. Help us to have the curiosity to press into them. And give us the courage to die and rise every time we must. In every temptation we face, in every difficulty, in every fear, in every degradation of ourselves. Help us to be willing in every moment to die, trusting that our hope is in you raising us. In every situation, in every hope, giving us happiness and virtue, and ultimately triumphing over our physical death. Help us to be believers in the resurrection.